Welcome to Advocation Change It Up, a podcast series hosted by Dr. Karen Lillard, a professor at the USF College of Public Health and director of the Activist Lab. Hello and welcome to Advocation Change It Up, the podcast series of the University of South Florida College of Public Health Activist Lab. I'm Dr. Karen Liller, a distinguished university health professor and director of the Activist Lab, and I'm joined by one of our student advisory board members, Jacqueline Zelizniak. How are you, Jackie? I'm well, how are you? Fine, thank you. The Activist Lab at the college prepares our students to be exemplary advocates and leaders in public health. And if you just Google us at our website, you'll see all the educational programs we do. We have boot camps, seminars, we do research on a variety of public health topics and advocacy and work to assure students have practice experiences in the community at the state and national levels. This podcast involves talking with public health leaders and advocates whose work has led to great improvements in public health. We'll be talking in each podcast with guests on a particular public health issue, and we'll end each podcast by asking how we as the community can advocate for change. Before we begin, I must add, though, the views expressed reflect those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the views of the University of South Florida. Today, I'll be talking with our guests about a topic that has been of concern to advocates and many individuals for several years, and it seems as though things are getting worse. This podcast focuses on the hate and injustices we are seeing among some population groups, such as the Jewish population, LGBTQIA groups, and others. I have asked on the podcast for our guests to be those individuals who truly have boots on the ground surrounding these issues to give their perspectives on not only how this problem has continued, but how we can change for the better. Our guests today are Mr. Mike Deason, Reverend Dr. Bernice Powell Jackson, and Dr. Jacob Glickman. And here's a little of their backgrounds. Mr. Mike Deason is a 12-time Emmy-winning investigative reporter who is the only broadcast journalist in the state of Florida to be Florida Journalist of the Year. In all, Mr. Deason has been nominated for more than 40 Emmy Awards. After retiring in 2017 as the senior investigative reporter for WTSP-TV, the CBS affiliate in Tampa Bay, he founded Deason Media, an investigative documentary company. Mr. Deason has been honored with many awards, such as the Lifetime Achievement Silver Circle Award from the National Academy of Arts and Sciences. He's a six-time winner of the Green Eyeshade Awards in the Southeast, a two-time winner of the Edward R. Murrow Award, and winner of more than 50 Associated Press and United Press International Awards, including Top Broadcast Journalist of the Year. He also was chosen as the outstanding broadcast reporter in the Southeast. Mr. Deason is also one of the hosts of the podcast, The Third Opinion, that focuses on current events and pressing issues facing the Jewish community and the state of Israel. Reverend Dr. Bernice Powell Jackson currently serves as pastor of the United Church of Tampa, a 138-year-old congregation of the United Church of Christ. Its membership is drawn from a wide radius because of its core values of peace with justice, open and affirming, multiracial, cultural, accessible to all, and an earth charter congregation, and committed to building relationships across lines such as faith, income, race, and politics. From 2004 to 2013, Dr. Powell Jackson was the North American president of the World Council of Churches, having been active in the ecumenical world for more than two decades. She has also served as executive minister for justice and witness ministries of the United Church of Christ and as one of the five officers of that denomination and later was the interim pastor of Beecher Memorial Congressional Church in New Orleans following Hurricane Katrina. Locally, she is serving as co-president of the Hillsborough Organization of Progress and Equality, an interfaith community organization that works for systemic change in the Tampa area. Dr. Powell Jackson has more than four decades of experience in working for racial justice, women's rights, economic justice, and human rights around the world. During the 1980s, she worked as director of the Archbishop Desmond Tutu Scholarship Fund and as the Archbishop's representative in the U.S. 
Dr. Jacob Glickman is a clinical psychologist, a licensed professional counselor, a sexologist, and feminist researcher. Originally from Tampa, he moved to Philadelphia in 2013 to complete his education and has since earned his doctoral degree in clinical psychology from Widener University, as well as a master's in human sexuality from Widener and a master's in professional clinical counseling from LaSalle University. Most recently, he has been awarded the 2022 Carol Cobb Nettleton Community Service Leadership Award in Clinical Sexology and the 2022 Outstanding Student Contributions Award. As a SIPACT approved psychologist, Dr. Glickman specializes in providing mental health care from a feminist acceptance and commitment therapy lens for members of the LGBTQIA community in all of their intersecting identities. Dr. Glickman believes that the highest standards of care involve maintaining an anti-racist, sex king positive, and culturally humble practice. And he currently counsels according to these values as a clinical supervisor and the postdoctoral fellow of the Therapy Center of Philadelphia. He has previously conducted research into the power of role-playing games as a clinical tool for marginalized communities, and his current work focuses on creating a better understanding of factors that inform prejudiced beliefs with the overall aim of dismantling them. Goodness. Those are wonderful bios, everyone. And uh, I'm going to ask as we begin, may I address you as Mike, oh, Bernice, please and do. Jacob? Okay. Please do, yeah. That will make yes, things, please. that sound all good? Absolutely, okay. of course. Oh, wonderful. Okay, thank you. Before we get started, I want to provide some background. The Southern Poverty Law Center has tracked 733 hate groups across the U.S. They're actually tracking 1,600 of extremist groups. And in Florida alone, there are 53 and probably many more. Everything from anti-immigrant to anti-LGBTQ to anti-Semitism, anti-Muslim, and the list goes on and on and keeps growing. They also report that democracy in the United States is under threat from an anti-democratic mass movement that has brought hate and anti-government extremists into the mainstream, threatening the fabric of our society and an inclusive, diverse democracy. It is urgent for policymakers to act to defend and strengthen our democratic institutions and to commit to holistic long-term initiatives to counter racism, anti-government extremism, and hate groups in America. Every citizen deserves to be able to participate in our democracy and civil discourse without fear, intimidation of barriers, and more. They recommend several changes in the U.S., such as enacting the Domestic Terrorism Prevention Act, the COVID-19 Hate Crime Act, and to enforce the fact that every state does prohibit private militias. Also, we need to speak out against hate, political violence, and extremism, work with veterans as veterans are often targets for extremist groups, fund prevention and education initiatives, and hold tech and social media companies accountable and promote online safety. This is a lot to unpack for this podcast, but I wanted to have this today to bring the issue more to light and to talk about strategies for change. I would like to ask each of our guests for their take on this rise in hate crimes from the groups they work with and know, maybe provide some examples, some whys, and later in the podcast, we can talk about some potential solutions. So I'm gonna start first with Mike, and then Bernice, and then Jacob, and we'll get questions from Jackie as well. I specifically wanna to talk to Jacob a little bit later about the psychology of hate and the history of hate, if possible. So Mike? start with you. Okay, and let me say that these are my views of it. The anti-Semitism has always been around with about 25% of the American population. Mm -hmm. Let me take you back to right in our community when the Glazers bought the Tampa Bay Buccaneers. Right. I was with some of the most uh, prestigious members of our community, the icons of Tampa Bay, who didn't realize I was Jewish and would say some truly horrific things about the Glazer family, those Jews, those money-grubbing Jews that are coming in here oh, and are gonna raise prices or take our team away. And I was truly conflicted on whether I should say I was Jewish uh -huh. 
or keep quiet and gain the knowledge from these people seeing the icons of our community being so prejudicial. I've made the choice not to say I was Jewish. I still am conflicted about it. I wrote about it in in one of the chapters in my book, Bad News for You is Good News for Me. Little plug there. Uh, (laughs) All right. uh, It's on Amazon and and Audible. But anyway, (laughs) and I think that the anti-Semitism has increased in geometric proportions. It is pervasive in doing the show that I do for Tampa Jewish Federation, Third Opinion. Right. I read a lot of Jewish publications and mm-hmm. le- learn a lot about prejudice and all, and it is overwhelming, overwhelming yes. how right. bad it is, um, not only in this area, not only in the United States, but in the world. So Mike, is the problem greater now? I mean, do you think it's greater now? And I, I, I see what you're saying with your reasons, but or do you think we're just seeing it more now because of social media, exposure? As you said, it was always there, probably, but is there truly more or is it we're just seeing it? It's 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 out in the open now. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was it was always there. Right. But it's out in the open. People have permission to say I hate Jews, I hate blacks, I hate gay people. So so permission has been granted, the door is opened, and we have to do something to shut it. Right, thank you, thank you so much. Bernice, what do you think? Well, I, I agree with uh, just about everything that Mike just said. I think um, there's a long history, and I think it's important, particularly in educational institutions, but in mm-hmm. the larger community as well, for us to really understand Florida history, if we're talking about Florida. So many of us are not originally from Florida. We came to Florida 10 years or 20 years or even 40 years ago, but we're not originally from Florida. And generally speaking, I mean, Americans, um, we really have, we see what we want to see. We remember what we want to remember. And so the roots to anti-Semitism, the roots to, uh, anti-black or anti-immigrant uh, go way back much further. So if you look mm-hmm. at Florida, for instance, in, in the in the uh, Reconstruction period and up through the 1950s, we had 319 lynchings in Florida. 319 people were hung right. from trees in this state simply because they were black. Uh, or simply because they stood up for the rights of black people or poor people or immigrant people uh, in their communities or to vote in, in some cases. There were five of them in Hillsborough County, by the way. Five people were uh. lynched in Hillsborough. A lot of Americans, a lot of Floridians don't know that history. And that's one mm-hmm. of the most damaging and frightening parts of this whole um, movement. Um, yes, we should be all uncomfortable to know there were 319 people lynched in, in the state of Florida, or to know that Harry and Harriet Moore, husband and wife, uh, were killed on Christmas Day in, in the, I think it was 1955. Mm-hmm. Um, they were both school teachers who organized black people to vote. They had registered thousands of black Floridians to vote in the 1950s, and how dare they? And they're bedroom was bombed and they were killed on Christmas Day on their 25th wedding anniversary. We don't know that story. Mm -mm. Um, And so it's hard for us that we can say, uh, yeah, yeah, we, you know, we are this, we're that, and we're the other. But yes, we are. But we we need to know those stories Mm -hmm. of what has happened throughout the state's history. Um, And if you look at, for instance, the connections between immigrant free labor mm-hmm. or very low income labor and right. and black labor, free labor, there are connections that go back from slavery times all the way up to now. Mm-hmm. So yeah. I, one of the things that I worry about is that we don't even know our, the whole history right. uh, and therefore we can't really assess where mm-hmm. we have come right. from. Um, there are, and the, the, the statistics that you read from the Southern Poverty Law Center are yes. really frightening. And I they're think they are under, so. and they're underestimated. Under, <laughs> yes, I think they're definitely. Many more 
threats had been made to synagogues, uh, to mm-hmm. uh, other places, you know, and and we need to understand that. Uh, and and I agree a hundred percent. So right. uh, the, these things are part of us. They've been a part of. When I was a young girl, we used to say, "Oh, when the old races died off, <laughs> it'll be <laughs> right." Okay. We, you and I well, talked about that. What? We just all have to die <laughs> because then, you well, know, because yeah. the new generation is going to be so much better than we are. <laughs> yeah, we used to say that, and you know, and it and it was a lie. <laughs> yeah. Um, yeah, and we've seen. Yeah. You know, we've lived long enough to see. That that kind of racism, that kind of anti-Semitism carries on from generation to generation. I think um, you and I dis- like yeah, you and I discussed Bernice a recent poll that came out about young people, and uh, share this with uh, Mike and Jacob and every and Jackie as well, which showed that you know I would think that their impression of all of this and the percentages they're showing in hate would have gone down, but surprisingly. We're seeing still a high number of young people with these feelings of hate. Yes. So yes. it's yes. not that this couple it's, generations no, have it, to just it, it go away. No. Yeah. <laughs> no. The final thing I want to say, one more thing, and then I'll yeah. shut up. And so we'll that be- is um, racism exhibits itself in varieties of ways. And one of the ways uh, that, you know, I've been working on civil rights issues for a long time. Years. Mm-hmm. <laughs> years, that's a long time right? and when I started out 50 years ago the biggest disconnect that I could see between the white community and the black community was around issues around criminal justice okay. and police brutality and those kinds of things and guess what it's the same now that has not changed mm. uh, and so I think that that's that I have to name that as well as a, as a really important issue right. in communities of color uh, and how they experience racism in their everyday life. Jacob, we'd love to hear from you on this topic. Thank you. I, of course, first agree with everything that Mike and Bernie have been saying. And one of, I think, the most important things in just thinking about this younger generation taking up the mantle of hatred is the recognition that as younger generations are seeing older generations like enact these patterns that, of course, they're learning, that I think one of the biggest challenges we're looking at is this intergenerational transmission of hatred. One of the biggest um, ideas within psychology right now surrounding prejudice is are we born with hatred or is hatred transmitted to us? And I think, unfortunately, the answer in a lot of cases is hatred is transmitted and we're learning it from older generations. And just thinking mm. from the LGBTQIA perspective, Um, Equality Florida has been doing incredible work and also recently in November, um, the Florida Board of Medicine and Osteopathy both finalized a ruling um, to restrict any care for transgender youth related to transition. And it's a little unclear how they're going to do this, um, but it sounds like any care that relates to social transition that isn't that results in legal transition that -hmm. results in any sort of like medical intervention Mm -hmm. that at least right now in my understanding that it seems like the ruling is going to try and prohibit all of those aspects. I think one of the other big things that feels like an intergenerational transmission of sorts is within the context of academia that so often the theories we use, the language we use is seeped in racism, is seeped in white supremacy, is seeped in heterosexism and cissexism. And so often we don't even realize. Right. And it's only when you're going back through and looking at different policies, different language, different theories, that there's the understanding of, of course, these came from human beings that were understanding their world in a particular way mm-hmm. and were holding all of their prejudices too. And so it makes me wonder if one of the big dismantling moves that is going to have to happen from an academic perspective mm-hmm, mm-hmm. is looking at all of these older theories, looking at all of these older practices in psychology, looking at all of these older studies and saying how much of this is based in the understanding of prejudice that people had at the time and how do we need to modify it mm-hmm. for the ways in which hopefully we do have potentially a broader view of what prejudice looks like also understanding that prejudice has always been there and that we are now in this really challenging period of time where we're seeing this huge uptick. And I right. think particularly for my population area, 
um, the transgender community mm-hmm. that certainly over the past decade, the amount of spotlight put on the transgender community has been astronomical. Mm-hmm. And of course, there has been this huge uptake in, preju- in prejudice that has right. come along with that. And the fact that so much of the spotlight is being focused on this particular community oh. when so many members of the community are essentially saying, please just mm-hmm. let us live our lives. Let us transition, believe us who we say we are. We don't yeah. want to harm anyone. There's, of course, people that perpetrate in every community. And also, I think right now there is this, I think the prejudice is targeted towards this feeling of because people are breaking the gender binary because people are expressing themselves in new and different ways that have historically been there for thousands of years. People are seeing it in a different way and assuming this is something that Mm -hmm. is harmful or this is something that is noxious. And this is something that will be spread throughout the community and spread and throughout the broader community of, in this case, the U.S. So I think that's one of the huge things in terms of looking at policy is well, thank you so much, uh, Mike, Bernice, and Jacob, for those comments. I'd now like to ask Jackie to see if she has any questions. I sure do. Um, I'm going to start with Mike because of your uh, expertise on the subject in Florida, as well as staying on topic with uh, lo- local laws and legislation. Um Can you tell us a little bit about the impacts that diversity, equity, and inclusion programs have on the health and well-being of our country and our community and what a lack of those might result in? Yeah, it's it's really concerning to me, Jackie. Um, I have a a five-year-old grandson who goes to preschool that uh, it's a Jewish-oriented preschool, but more than half the kids in the preschool are not Jewish, which is just great. There's a lot of Asian kids. There are African-American kids, and they talk about the different cultures. So as he gets older, he will be comfortable with Asians, blacks. Uh, I'm sure that there are gay kids in his school, but at five, you don't identify it as much. The problem is, if there was a law that prohibited people from talking about the differences and the similarities and the problems that we've all encountered in our various groups, then these people wouldn't know anything about the problems that they have gone through. They would have a lack of understanding why people are upset, why African Americans are upset, what what happened to them, as Bernice talked about all the lynchings. If that was wiped from the history books, people would say, well, why are you angry? Why do you think think that white America doesn't like you. Well, 300 lynchings, come on. That's one reason. If we shut that out, if we become a uh, Fahrenheit 451 uh, country, then people won't know. And the way you break down racial barriers and prejudices, whether it's uh, in race or transgender or gay, is by learning about the other person and finding the commonalities that you all have and realizing that you all have some issues being a minority of some sort and that we can work together and erase those. But we've got to fight this and we've got to come together, not fight within each other. Hope that answers it. Absolutely. (laughs) Absolutely. I think communicating that information for people in an objective fashion is so important. So thank you. Um, I have a question for Bernice. Um, In my experience as an adopted Korean American with a Russian-Ukrainian family, I was actually asked by my own mother, uh, who is Caucasian, last year, whether or not, since I'm Asian, I'm a person of color. So since you have so much experience on this topic, can you just explain for the audience what the difference between racial and ethnic minorities versus people of color is? Good question. (laughs) (laughs) I'm laughing, Um, not at you or your question, but... uh, it's probably a question that many people have and, uh, you know, are afraid to ask. Um, you know, I, let me just start by saying the whole concept of race is a social construct. Mm-hmm. Exactly. Mm-hmm. If, if I am in a car accident 
I'm African-American. If I'm in a car accident, I don't really have to have blood from African-Americans in order to save me, nor does a white person have to have blood from a white person. So we're all the same. Okay. That's the basic bottom line. Race is a social construct. And I was so glad that uh, Jacob mentioned the the role of academia throughout history in supporting that social construct uh, through uh, anthropology and other kinds of uh, of, uh, fields. But the church is also responsible for that. And so I need to name that, that the church is just as responsible for those false constructs. And the church, and Martin Luther King used to say that 11 o'clock on Sunday was the most segregated hour in the country because there were very few churches that mm-hmm. were integrated, that people of different races could come to. So um, to say the difference is um, that for a long time in this country, you were considered African-American if you had one drop of mm-hmm. black blood, That's right. um, which is hard for people to understand. When I was growing up as a little girl, there was nothing called biracial. You were either black or you were white. Uh, and, um, and so now, of course, through the years, all of that has evolved. The term people of color generally refers to uh, people who are African-American, Latino, um, uh, Hispanic, sometimes people use those words interchangeably, uh, or Asian American or Pacific Island, all those categories, which are all very different, by the way. Uh, but generally speaking, that's what we're talking about when we talk about people of color. Um, ethnic groups tend to be more like cultural groups, uh, Polish American or Italian American, things like that. So that's kind of a broad brush stroke. There's a lot more that goes to answering that question. Thank you for it. Very interesting. Thank you. Uh, I do have a question for Jacob. Uh, to go on, uh, to continue what you were saying before, I had a question for the psychology realm of things. So why does the notion of being American look a certain way to people? Why is it that some people are asked the question, where are you from, and others aren't? Another good question. It's, it's a really good question, and that I think, I think that there's a lot of different components to it. That I think when people, within the context of the U.S., But I think one of the challenges is that a lot of times people who are American don't see their own culture, that it's perceived a particular way outside of the U.S. And also that I think it goes back to this idea of prejudice and power and privilege, too. That idea of if you are part of a majority identity, which within the case of the U.S. is American, or is considered like a white American and a lot of times Christian, a lot of times cis, a lot of times um, heterosexual, there are all of these factors that kind of group together to make the majority identity that a lot of times people outside of the U.S. see as the American. And I think within the context of any particular country in America, specifically right now talking about it, that when people have majority identities, a lot of times they don't think of it as an identity. That I'm thinking, just as Bernice was just saying, that white people have an identity and have a cultural heritage and there's an ethnicity and there's, histor- and there's history and traditions, all of these different things. And I think that a lot of times if you ask a person who is white, just for example, what is your race? They'll say, I don't know. It's normal. I don't, I don't have a race. <laughs> yeah, normal. And, and, and thinking about that from the perspective of within the context of the U.S., if you say to someone who looks, sounds, acts like they sit within this schema, sort of this overall picture of what we view an American as, they'll probably be like, I don't know, I'm just I'm from here. I'm, I'm, I'm normal. I'm just, I, I don't have, I don't have a place. I don't have a culture, which is fundamentally not true. And also I think, unfortunately, one of the huge misconceptions is when you're part of a majority identity, Mm-hmm. That it, in some ways, also erases that culture, 
And that I think a lot of times that's part of how other countries, other people perceive the U.S. is it has to do with that majority identity that within the context of the U.S. a lot of times we don't see because we are in it. One of the things that a lot of times we say within psychology, sociology is this idea of like a fish doesn't know it's in water. (laughs) And I think that that is so incredibly important to keep in mind that when you are looking at sort of the rest of the world, that they are seeing this, this particular conglomeration of identities that we would just consider normal and we're surrounded by all the time. And especially I think for people who are in minority identities in some way, that those are the people who may have more awareness but the majority identity has a culture too. And I think that's just kind of like the very beginning part of the understanding of like why people outside of the U S and different cultures are seeing Americans as this particular sort of monolith. And also why I think within the context of the U S a lot of people see Americans as this particular monolith. And then unfortunately, of course, the other side of the double-edged sword is, they're looking at people who don't fit into that bracket or that mold and are saying, you don't belong here. So I think that that is sort of just some of the various facets that are coming in together to make this very strange, like cultural dichotomy. And of course, thinking exactly as Bernice just said, that all of the, so many of these constructions that we're looking at, whether it be race, whether it be gender presentation, whether it be all of these different factors, they're all culturally bound. And a lot of times are not implicitly connected to who we are as human beings, that it's within this pocket of culture that all of these things have been sort of nurtured and brought up to be something that it's almost impossible to see beyond. Again, thinking about the fish and water, I think race is something that for so many people, again, using it as an example, is so deeply ingrained within our psyche that it does feel like it is an inherent part of us. And I think it's a huge revelation for a lot of people to realize, oh, wait a second. No, this, this is something that's socially bound. This is, and thinking about academia again, when you are looking at so much, like, so much racism beat into and shaped into academic findings about, and thinking about, like, anthropology and how deeply racist and white supremacist anthropology has been scientific racism especially in the 1800s, turn of the 1900s. But I think that's also one of the ways that we've kind of collectively tricked ourselves into thinking these differences are something that is Mm -hmm. real, true, and impossible to overcome. Jacob, don't you think, though, that part of the problem is that the ethnicity of our country is changing and that um, white male Christians, which have basically run the country for 200 years, are no longer going to be the majority of America. And the fear that emanates from those people uh, is part of the reason that they are trying to um, subjugate any anything that expands the knowledge of other cultures, other races, other ethnicities, and that this is driven out of a complete fear as they see their majority majority just slipping away because another 10, 15, 20 years, whatever be the case, white male Christians will not be uh, the majority in our country. The white population will not be the majority of our country. And there is some fear that emanates because of that. Wow. I mean, one of one of the most, I think, kind of powerful and potentially relevant um, theories of prejudice and how it develops is intergroup threat theory, which speaks exactly to what you're saying right now. And it's the concept that people identify as either part of an in-group or their in-group also happens to be an out-group in sort of the larger cultural context. And that when people are part of their in-group, that they're looking for kind of two different types of threats. That they're looking for either realistic threats, which a lot of times have to do with like, Property, physical harm, power, resources, physical well-being are all considered like realistic threats. They're also looking for symbolic threats, which have to do with values, meanings, morals, things like that. And so the way that this theory sort of identifies the formation of prejudice is that people in the in-group, whatever that in-group is, 
they're scanning for these threats and that they're feeling intergroup anxiety. They're afraid of having people take away whatever they're perceiving as theirs, whether it be their culture, whether it be their resources. And with that anxiety, with that fear, and their perception of these two threats, regardless of whether the threat is real or not, that it's simply just the perception of the threat that then results in the express prejudice. And exactly as you're saying, that you're looking at groups of people that for the past 200 years have had so much power, so much privilege, and have had sort of this prominent place within society. And then to have that challenge, I imagine there's both a perception of realistic threat of we're going to lose our financial resources. Where, and I'm thinking about from the perspective of like Jewishness and thinking about World War II, the different sort of threats that were leveled against Jewish people that eventually resulted in the Holocaust. That idea of these are people that have too much financial privilege. They're the reason why Germany and why Europe in general does not have access to resources. There's also the symbolic threat of like this culture is so other. Their values, their attitudes, their beliefs, their moral standards are so different than ours. And in fact, their beliefs, their standards are threatening our way of life. And then with both that perceived realistic threat and that perceived symbolic threat, it resulted in the prejudice, which has been so catastrophic. And as Jewish people, I think we look back and say, oh, my God, how did this happen? And also, we know why it happened. And we're able to trace those same threads, that same intergroup threat theory today for all of these different populations. And that absolutely, if you're starting in a place of power, for instance, thinking about white, Christians, cisgender, a lot of times heterosexual men, the power that you have to do something about those perceived threats is so great that I think that's a lot of times where the real danger comes in. People are reacting to threats that they're perceiving and also have the power to actively harm a lot of the majority, a lot of the minority people, excuse me, that they're seeing as being threatened. Right. It's all fear-based. Wow. What important insights. Right. That's fantastic. I do just have one last question for Ms. Bernice, um, and probably for all of you. Um, so the last question I have is, when you see injustice happening, how do you react and ensure your personal safety? Because violent crimes have skyrocketed and a lot of people don't speak up because they're afraid um, of real threats. More so now, too. Right. Yeah, it's a good question. Um, A few months ago, I wrote a letter to the editor to the Tampa Bay Mm -hmm. Times, and I didn't put the name of my church there because it wasn't my church's letter. It was my letter. Mm -hmm. And, uh, And I received an email chastising me to my church email. So that person had tracked down my church Mm -hmm. email. And then I received an unsigned, unaddressed letter to my home. I think you have to always be aware of where you are. You know, if you're in a protest or a march or something, you have to be aware. You cannot not be aware because there are good people and bad people in every march, Uh, people on your side, people not on your side, Um, people who want to start trouble for for various reasons. So I think, you know, you always have to be personally aware of where you are when you're in that situation. But having said that, um, I feel personally um, that I have to speak out. I have to say, I have to challenge injustice when I see it. But I have a question for you, Bernice. Um, One of the things that has concerned me, I went to college in the 60s. I'm old. And and I I remember uh, being involved in Jewish organizations that were uh, working to uh, help pass the Civil Rights Act and and worked hand in glove with the African-American community. There has been in recent years, it seems to me, a schism of uh, sometimes uh, the African-American community and the Jewish community coming along. And I think that one of the things that we can do internally as blacks and Jews is, first of all, break down those prejudicial barriers so we are working together as all minorities, whether it's LBGTQ or uh, African-Americans or Jews. But if we unite, we are a force that 
that has to be reckoned with. But right now, we are on many ways going two, down two separate roads. What do you think about that? Uh, I'm from the same time as you, and I lived in New York in the 1980s, and I was a part of a group of African-American and Jewish leaders who uh, worked to to do to talk together, first of all, because uh, from the 1980s, uh, from that time on, there was that break. Um, so I think we do have that responsibility to come together, to find our places of commonality, to recapture some of that history. And I do agree uh, with you that when, we're, when we work together across all of these lines, um, amazing things happen. If you look at North Carolina and what happened uh, in the last, you know, five years ago with Moral Mondays, that was uh, Jewish people, black people, Latino people, uh, Asian people, nurses, teachers, um, pastors. It was just across. It was an amazing uh, moment. Uh, but it's not easy because there are forces that seek to pull us apart for obvious reasons. Uh, and so, yes, I agree that it, if we speak out together and uh, support one another, um, we can make change happen. And, and I agree that, you know, a lot of this is fear-based um, of, of what the realities are. I remember in the 1980s, I guess it was, we did a church study that showed, you know, we were talking about how you develop churches in the future. And, and we realized, you know, looking at the, the uh, census data, that by 2030, which seemed like a long way off <laughs> then, but not so <laughs> long right now, right? Corner, <laughs> <laughs> that we were not going to be a country, uh, uh, you know, a predominantly white country anymore. So what did that mean? You know, for, for instance, for mainline Protestant churches, that, that has a big meaning. Mm. Um, and so uh, we've got to think ahead. We have got to pull together. We've got to find common ground. Uh, we've got to talk because we can't just automatically assume that because we do have that history, that common history, um, that we all understand each other. I find that true in the in the brown community, in, in the Hispanic community. They don't, you know, always yeah. understand the African American mm -hmm. story, and we don't always understand their story. But when we do stop and talk about our stories and understand the common uh, problems that we face in this country, and that sense of being made to feel other—that was what you all were talking about earlier mm -hmm. was that otherness other you mm -hmm. are not american you are other, other. Mm -hmm. um i'm sorry but i'm american my parents came That's from right. america my grandparents came from america my great-grandparents came from america mm -hmm. i know where they're all buried about 35 miles from washington dc mm -hmm. so i'm not going to be made uh, to feel like i'm an other so right. anyway i agree with you mike we do have to, <laughs> the power of coming together um, is what also makes people feel. Well, this is sort Absolutely. of... Yeah. Oh, go ahead, Jacob. And I mean, just as the two of you are talking, it makes me think in some ways also back to kind of the original question of like how, how do individuals keep themselves safe? And that I think a lot of times it is about relying on the power and privilege of others who have more, who are willing to be allies and accomplices who are able to step in and speak up when you cannot and also have the knowledge to know that like when you have the opportunity to use your voice as someone who is oppressed, that they then need to present you with a spotlight. And I think that that is kind of the ebb and flow that creates change. And on sort of a broader scale, as both of you are saying, thinking about, for instance, like the African-American and the Jewish communities that historically have been incredible allies and have had the ability to move in sort of different circles of power and privilege and also have different aspects of marginalization. But I think in some ways that's a beautiful symbiotic relationship. And also thinking again about that fear-based aspect that if the majority group makes you feel like there's a limited amount of resources for us and we as minorities have to scramble for resources and have to step over each other for second place, whatever that means, that I think that that's a lot of times when communities that have worked together historically start falling apart. Mm 
and just thinking about how can prejudice be stopped on a larger scale. But I think there are kind of five main components that go into it. There's this idea of looking towards larger social change and also collective action, moving together again as like unified members of minority communities, thinking again about also what makes us different and being able to hold space in this particular example for what makes Jewish people special, what makes African-American people special, how those communities both can move together and also have separate And then, of course, looking at the overall cultural situation in which we're all placed. And then I think the most important component of how prejudice can be stopped is through a discursive approach, through dialogue, through communication with each other, and through communication with majority communities who hold a lot of power and privilege. But I think it's really only through building that understanding and having conversations like this one that there is a chance of potentially dismantling some of this larger prejudice that not only creates a separation between majority and minority, but creates separations amongst people who are part of the minority, who then feel threatened not only from majority, but also from each other. And I think that goes back to the original question of how to keep yourself safe, is in looking at how there are allies and accomplices who inhabit every single aspect of culture, who have all sorts of different identities, and that your job as a member of the minority is to be able to hold both the importance of your own culture and also look for who on the, in these other cultural aspects may be able to uplift your voice and in turn, whose voice can you uplift? Yeah. Wow. Thank you so much for that. So it you think, kind of answered. Oh, thing, go ahead, Bernice. I just was, as Jacob was talking, I was remembering, I think it was in Montana, and I'm talking about maybe 10 or 15 years ago. There was a, a an anti-Semitic attack in this, in this town, I want to say it was Billings, but anyway, wherever it was, and everybody put up uh, menorah in their windows. Mm. Everybody, yeah. um, as a sign to say, "Hey, mm-hmm. I'm solidarity." Too. You know, attack yeah. me. <laughs> yeah. And so I think um, Jacob's point about allies uh, is so important in terms of how you keep any one uh, group safe from attacks from others. Is that we all have to say. We're all trans, okay? We're all uh, Jewish. We're all black. We're, you know, when yeah. it comes to justice in our nation and in our state, we've all got to, to stand together. So he's saying, don't separate us. You can't separate us. <laughs> we're all part of the same collective. That's right. So I think all of you have been talking about sort of our next point, which is here we are in academia. Here we are in the activist lab, <laughs> uh, in the community. What, what are some uh, strategies we can do to promote change? I mean, what are some real strategies we can do now? I mean, we're doing it now with the podcast, but what are some other ideas you might have how academia and the community can unite to promote change? It starts at the ballot box, and it gets to the basic grassroots uh, registration of voters. So the first place you have to start, because nothing will change. So we can't go anywhere until we organize and elect representatives that are representative of equality, of uh, really, I think of the reflection of the majority of uh, Americans. But Uh, we're not doing a good job at that. And that is where it has to start. Well, we always say, Mike, you know, in the in the activist lab and all the talks that I do, what's the best advocacy strategy? Everybody always wants to know what's the best thing we can do. And it's vote. That's what I say. It's easy to (laughs) vote. So, uh, yeah, so I I agree with you. Uh, Jacob or Bernice, what do you think about? I do think I agree with Mike 100 percent. I agree. Mm -hmm. I agree 100 percent. I would add one other thing, and that is We've got to challenge those silent folk, Republicans mm-hmm. or Democrats or independents. It doesn't matter who you are. Those who have been silent, who don't maybe approve of it, um, but really they just want to stay safe. They just want to, you know, mm-hmm. do what they normally do on the everyday. So we, we have to challenge our friends and our family who mm-hmm. just want to stay safe. They don't, they kind of think that this isn't right, but they, right. you know, they just go along, go along to get along or however it goes, get along to go along. Um, and so I think that, that we've all got to challenge those folks 
to say something because as long as they're silent, um, the, the, the extremists will they will win. Mm-hmm. Um, and so we need them to speak out as well. Um, I think education is this part that goes hand in glove with with um, with voting. I, I, I couldn't agree more about voting, but I think also education. Definitely. Bernice, you make such a good point. It, it goes back to the famous World War II uh, or uh, Holocaust poem that came after the Jews. I said nothing. They came after the gays. I said right. nothing, blah, 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 blah. Yeah. And when they came after me, there was no one to speak up for me. So mm-hmm. we must, exactly. we must so get right. everybody to speak up. Mm-hmm. Good point, Bernice. Yes. Thank you. Jacob? Yeah. And especially within the context, I guess, thinking specifically about academia and what we can do as theorists, as, re- as researchers, mm-hmm. one of going back to the... Um, Florida Board of Medicine and Florida Board of Osteopathy um, that I mentioned at the beginning Mm -hmm. is one of the big divisions between the two of them, which the Florida Board of Medicine ended up moving forward with and osteopathy did not, is that there's also this moratorium on research surrounding Mm -hmm. any sort of trans topic. Mm. And that I think it's the shutting down of research that feels like one of the scariest pieces of it. Mm -hmm. And that I'm thinking about what universities can do and the first is community-based research that so often within the world of academia we have done research on populations and i think the movement of community-based research is we are doing research in collaboration with communities to answer questions that they have and i think that's one of the biggest differences of knocking down some of that ivory tower aspect Mm -hmm. is figuring out how can we move from studying people to working with people right. and studying with people. Mm-hmm. And that in line with that, as I'm thinking about from a clinical perspective, that you in your practice are using theory, that you are doing experimentation and research, and then that those are turning into the interventions that you in terms of psychology thinking about. Mm-hmm. And that one of the best things that academia can do is connecting those layers knowing where your theories come from, knowing how they influence the research and how that is then going to influence how practitioners move through the world. Yeah. And I think it's recognizing the way in which there is that chain and the way, of course, then thinking about how politics as a larger aspect comes in, how voting comes in, thinking about this as a systemic movement, the systemic approach feels so incredibly important because when we're siloed and academia so often is a silo, I think that's when there's real harm and real danger that academia helps perpetuate. That's why I love public health, because we are population health. We favor so much a community-based participatory research is what it's called, where we don't have all the answers. We don't go in and say, hey, community, work with us. And then when our funding is over, we'll see you later, right? Good luck. But but the participatory research where the questions come from the community, they're with us 100% from the very start of the research questions all the way through to the evaluation. And we're also very clear about trying to also educate the community. So when we do go away, because we will, the funding will end and, you know, realistically, we can't live there forever. They will be able to carry on. You know, we've already now shared this information with them, and now so it's not that one-sided. So, Jackie, I'm going to ask you a question now. Um, what are the feelings of students on this topic? Yours will be our future. Yours will be the generation and future generations that's going to have to deal with all of this. So. What do you feel? I, I know what the activist lab feels, but what, what, are, what are feelings of people your age on this topic? Well, so there is this constant underlying frustration mm-hmm. all the time. Mm-hmm. And part of that is not necessarily being able to find your own voice, but another part of that that I think is really important is open conversations and making meanness not mainstream anymore. Meanness has become mainstream and people are unabashed about some of the hate speech that they say. Mm -hmm. Where, Mm -hmm. I mean, when I was growing up, if you didn't have something nice to say, guess what? And treat other people the way you wanna be treated. But 
it's scary for someone like me in March of 2020 at the grocery store being told that I'm a China virus and to go back to my country where I belong and then being afraid to leave the store and go to my car. Things like that, where this is just okay. This is normal now. This is mainstream. So I think a lot of young people are struggling with personal safety and the underlying frustration of, I want to say something, but can I? a really really good point but yes you can you know that's what we're trying to do today right we're trying to get that information out I think students really do want to do that I know from from the activist lab and that and how important it is to vote Mm -hmm. as as Mike has said and everyone and to and to find your voice you know I've I've been asked by students and and other people over the the years I'm well, why, why do you keep doing this? Why do you advocate, you know, my area's injury prevention? Why, why, why? Because there's defeats all the time in Congress and everything, because I think as, as Mike and others have said, right, if your voice is not there, other voices will be, mm-hmm. but they're not yours. So then what happens, happens, right? If your voice is not there, so that's why you come back. That's why you always try to come back and come back and come back. There's still that hope in all of us. Yeah. That changes on the precipice. I firmly believe that. Things will change. But we have to do some of the strategies that we we heard today. Any other comments or, or final remarks on this topic? It's so much. Yeah. Bernice, what do you think? Final thoughts. Well, I'm always encouraged when we can have a conversation. (laughs) Um, And I agree that uh, with Jackie, I think that um, too often uh, we're yelling at each other. We're not Mm -hmm. talking with each other. Mm -hmm. We're not listening to each other. We're not hearing our stories. And even some of the people who I most adamantly would disagree with, um, I need to know their story. Why are they so angry? You know, it's not just, sometimes it's social media that hypes them up, but sometimes they have a real story that I need to hear. Mm-hmm. Uh, and they need to hear my story as well. So we've got to find vehicles and ways across generations, across uh, religion, across uh, sexual orientation and gender identity, across all, every barrier in, that we can think of. We've got to find ways to have that conversation mm-hmm. and to work together. You know. There once was a can-do attitude in this country. Yes, Uh, We can go to the moon. We can do, you know. And now it's all about we can't do, what we can't do. Um, And so we've gotten to a place where we can't even provide school lunches for hungry children. Right. Come on. Mm -hmm. This is the wealthiest nation in America. Can't Republican and Democrat in Congress agree that we should feed our children? Mm-hmm. can't agree about that what can they agree about so I just feel like um, whenever we can have a conversation and understand each other more and we will find that there are there are going to be points that we disagree on but there are also points that we do agree on and that's what I think we've got to find a way uh, forward with is to find those points that we can agree on uh, those moral things Feeding children, uh, it, you know, preventing children from getting killed and shot and killed in right. school, right? Um, or people in synagogues or people in uh, churches, you know, uh, we can agree on that, um, and we can do something about it, but not the way we're going now. Right. It's become so politicized. I think in COVID-19 was a perfect example of that. And we could go on and on about mm. that. <laughs> um, uh, Jacob. Final remarks. Uh, as you're as you're all talking about it and describing it, I think one of the best ways of reducing fear is to actually be able to put a face and a name to the group that people are visualizing. Mm-hmm. To be able to say, I have a friend who is part of this minority, and I now can picture this friend when I'm thinking about those people, whoever mm-hmm. those people are in this context. It's humanizing. And, mm-hmm. Exactly, like creating those connections. And that I think another piece of those creating connections, which is so critically important, is of course being aware of whatever we're doing, younger generations are seeing that too. Right. And that's going to be the behavior that 
they're modeling from. And I think the last piece is that power and privilege are not bad things. That as we're talking about it, the mission is not to disenfranchise everybody to take away everyone's power and privilege. It's to ask the question, so why do some people have this power and privilege and not everybody mm-hmm. has this power and privilege? Mm-hmm. So it's less about breaking down and more about uplifting. And mm-hmm. I think that's also the mindset shift that we all collectively need to get into, that there is a potential way of uplifting everybody and that it begins with voting and it begins with yeah. conversation. Very, very, very good. Well, thank you all so much. What an inspiring topic. So I'd like to say we can and must do better. On behalf of the USF College of Public Health Activist Lab, our wonderful guests, Mr. Mike Deason, Reverend Dr. Powell Jackson, and Dr. Glickman, we thank you for joining us. And hey, keep listening. We have more podcasts coming soon. As always, we'd love to hear your feedback. Let us know how we did by emailing us at cophactivistlab at usf.edu. So hey, until next time, this is Dr. Karen Liller. Remember, find your voice. Let's change it up for the better. Keep listening and join Advocation Change It Up. Tell your friends and family we're on all media, Apple, Spotify, and more. So thank you again. And hey, as it gets safer to be out and about, come see us in the Activist Lab.